and welcome to Ipsa Dixit. I'm your student co-host, S.J. Morrison. Today, I will be speaking to Professor Greg Day, Assistant Professor at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia School of Law, Professor Abby Stemmler, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business on their article, Are Dark Patterns Anti-Competitive? The article is available on SSRN. Good morning and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having us. I just want to start with some vocabulary. First, tell me what is platform technology and what are dark patterns? Abby, I think that'd probably be good for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, (laughs) platform technology or platform-based businesses are um, organizations, businesses, firms that rely on a digital space to connect users. Um, So Airbnb connecting hosts and guests, Twitter connecting advertisers and tweeters. Um, And so with the platforms, they kind of curate this environment for the interactions. And then dark patterns are um, what they refer to as like the subtle design choices that can influence users' decisions. Um, And so they're things that we might not notice that the platform is doing to direct our behavior. Okay. And when I was reading your article, you did focus a lot on those free platforms um, like Facebook and Twitter Uh, tell me about how these free platforms make money. Yeah, they make money off of you and your digital exhaust. Um, All of your data that you put out there in the world, that is very, very valuable for advertisers in particular, um, because the more that the platforms know and can understand about you um, and draw insights from the data that you leak, the better they can sell that uh, data and your specific and access to you specifically to advertisers. In addition, it might not just be advertisers. It could also be um, politicians, governments that also want to, you know, be able to get in front of your eyeballs. Okay. And when I was reading the article, this, this kind of like warped my brain and I found it a little bit disturbing. Um, It's more than just the information that you put into the platform when you're setting it up. Am I correct? But what I mean by that is like, when you set up your Facebook, you put in like your name and your your birthday and you might put in where you work, but it's also how much time you spend looking at certain things, right? And like how many clicks and how long it takes you to progress to the next screen. Am I right? Exactly. One thing I found particularly interesting was apparently uh, from our research, it sounded like Instagram has apparently an extraordinarily good idea about global fashion trends. Um, And that's sort of by just mining what pictures do people click on? What do they like? And, and so it's not even individuals necessarily, I mean, not even people necessarily individually, but just sort of also we can think about more of like collectively as a group as well in terms of, you know, it it can as a very good idea of what certain people like, but also the trends amongst, you know, society and, and just from, you know, the comments that are given, how quickly people navigate off photos, and most platforms, I think, or many platforms, have sort of the, uh, those sort of capabilities. Okay, so then talk to me about the attention cycle, and especially about decisional privacy, and why it is so important. 
Yeah. So one thing that we really focused on um, in our paper was how darn good these platforms are at maintaining our attention. Um, they can, you know, use the insights they collect from our data um, to really figure out how to get us to stay on the platform. I mean, think of the last time you watched Netflix and it immediately um, started automatically playing another thing for you to watch. And it was like perfectly tailored to you and you really were interested in what was playing. That is how platforms can know you and know what you're likely to want so that they can keep you on the, the platform longer. The same goes for, um, Twitter, um, making you wait a little bit in anticipation before you can see your tweets load or Instagram, um, having you do the constant scroll. So when we have like an unlimited, uh, scroll down, I don't know what you'd call that, but the ability to go all the way through uh, your Instagram feed, people will tend to stay on the platform longer. And the longer that you stay, the more you can be for, the more you can be surveilled, the more data can be collected about you, and the more platforms can run experiments. Um, so you know, platforms don't operate labs, but they have the incredible ability to run A/B tests, uh, which refer to kind of just having two ways of presenting information or choices to users. So um, they can run these side-by-side -side tests all the time to figure out what's the best way to get users to stay on the platform even more, or perhaps click on that ad we want them to click on, or, um, you know, go to somebody else's website. How are we best able to direct their behavior? Um, so the intention cycle involves first capturing that attention, then surveilling, collecting, and experimenting on users to make the platform even more addictive, which then keeps the cycle going. So we stay on these platforms uh, for so long. Um, another great example Greg uh, revealed is the Snapchat streak. Um, so where users, they want to continue to get on Snapchat um, because they don't want to lose their streak that shows that, you know, hey, I've been sending a snap or whatever you do, um, multiple days in a row. Okay. So full disclosure, I'm, I'm a little weird. Okay. And I was reading your paper and I was sitting in my office and I kept, when I was reading this, I kept glancing at my phone. Um, at, like any millennial, I, I engage in social media, right. And I'm like reading this and I'm thinking about how I'm having this pull to like check my Facebook and my husband walks past the office as soon as I look at my phone and I say, I have autonomy. You don't have control over me. <laughs> it was, um, he's a, he's a very lucky man. Um, but, <laughs> but so then let, let's talk a little more about how online manipulation threatens privacy. Well, I say I want to give you the exact sort of same experience. Like while writing the paper, I remember I, I I just started looking at my phone and scrolling through it, and I realized like I was typing on my computer at the moment. Like there was nothing on my phone that I couldn't access what I was currently using on my computer. Yet I suddenly had to be on my phone anyway. You know, so I so I think we've all had that sort of that the same exact sort of uh, pull. I I think um, the idea of decisional privacy is is uh, I don't know. It's fascinating to me. It's something that I never had thought about until Abby uh, mentioned it to me and, and sort of discussing sort of the concept of it. I mean, we in our last paper that it's in the uh, 
Iowa Law Review in Free Competitive Privacy, she wrote about it. And it was one of those things that, you know, when I was just reading the draft, I'm like, it had never even like sort of occurred to me that um, an element of privacy is, can, can be conceived of as uh, your ability to sort of make decisions free of coercion or sort of, you know, there's a lot of times when you're, re- when you're looking at an advertisement and it says, you know, buy Coke or buy something. I mean, you're being persuaded, but it's, but it's very apparent, you know, sort of like the persuasion is in front of your eyes and to some degree, I mean, you should have this ability to say, do I want to buy this or do I not want to buy this? But where decisional privacy sort of becomes threatened is this idea when you don't realize how your behaviors are necessarily being steered into certain directions in ways that you're engaging in behaviors that probably you wouldn't do otherwise, you know, sort of with full information or, um, yeah. Yeah. And and in in your article, uh, coming to the legal side, you first give a nod to privacy laws, but then argue that these might not be the rest, the best remedy for online manipulation. Why do you argue that? Why aren't privacy laws enough? I I just think that I think that we think they really could be is how they're currently designed, but we definitely find a a very important role for them. I was just going to say, too, that the current privacy regime is really uh, lacking cohesion and comprehension. Um, Even in places where you really have robust privacy regimes trying to come into play, like the GDPR in Europe and um, in California with their new regulations, they're still very much based on old models of consent. Like people will consent to having their data be used. And as long as they've consented, their privacy is not being violated. But we kind of feel that consent regimes don't really get at the heart of um, manipulation, because if you are perhaps tricked into consenting, then there's no consent at all. Um, and so the current way we structure privacy laws as a consumer protection issue is not the best. In addition, in the U.S., we simply don't have a comprehensive privacy re- privacy regime at the federal level. I mean, you might have your medical records um, be private under HIPAA, uh, HIPAA or you know other kind of isolated silos of privacy protections. But comprehensive wise, we don't do a good job. And so we just were thinking about other ways, other legal tools we could use to get at the heart of privacy protections, especially from manipulation. And we felt that, you know, antitrust has often been ignored in this debate. And so trying to bring it into play as just one of the arrows in the quiver uh, to protect privacy might not be a bad idea to explore. And we explored in a lot of pages in our paper. Yeah. So how can antitrust law then potentially be the conduit for addressing online manipulation? Well, I think, uh, I, th- I think there actually is sort of a rich history of antitrust uh, engaging in, you know, how do firms actually compete against each other? And I think that's actually one of the, the most fun parts about antitrust law is there is uh, it, it's oftentimes very difficult to, to tell what is competitive or what is anti-competitive. I mean, if you think about it, the sort of the end result of vigorous, hard-fought competition and anti-competitive behavior is oftentimes, you know, rival firms disappear. So it's kind of hard to figure out, you know, which one is which. And sort of like delving in sort of the history of antitrust, we see that there is um, 
there's plenty of areas where sort of the way firms engage with consumers, the way they sort of maybe compel or, or, or co-ox or nudge uh, consumers can go beyond competing on the merits. And, uh, and, and so I think to, uh, to Abby and I, we found that as, as a particularly fun sort of uh, area to, uh, to investigate. And Greg, you talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but draw the distinction for me between online persuasion and coercion. Because persuasion, you were talking a little bit earlier about like seeing like a Coca-Cola ad, um, but then like yeah. coercion is a little more sinister uh, in my perspective. But yeah, t- where's where's the distinction between per- persuasion and coercion? Oh my God. So, th- so that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's sort of like the million dollar question. And what I think... Um, I particular what, what I find especially interesting is, uh, I mean, the Sherman Antitrust Act is only is, is sort of the um, the banned behaviors. I mean, there's, it's only written in a few sentences, or you know, in a few lines. And the whole idea was sort of by the drafters, were like, well, we'll we'll just codify the common law and give the uh, and let the courts sort of define and, and limit and narrow uh, the scope of of the text in the future. So. It's not like there's actually guidance within inside the Sherman Act or in the antitrust law saying we find this to be persuasion, we find this to be coercion, and, and this is fine, but this isn't. So this is largely just sort of you know different circuit courts and the courts making these decisions and and, uh, and sort of balancing interests over uh, uh, generations. And what the general idea now is, and we also I should also mention that. Everyone, I think, is pretty clear that digital markets have create new demands. So what the courts have previously called persuasion or coercion may not currently apply or may not currently apply in digital markets. There's plenty of room to sort of talk of it, to, to reinvestigate or revisit, you know, old, uh, old precedent. With that being said, there was sort of an idea that firms compete. And when they compete, they try to persuade. And in doing so... Sometimes they say things that aren't 100% true. Sometimes they disparage their competitors. Sometimes they just they, they inundate you with, uh, with, with advertising. And all of those things that are trying to get consumers to engage in a certain behavior is typically just considered persuasion. Because, I mean, the law makes this assumption that, that the consumers on balance are generally rational. You know, like there is no so much advertising you can do to get me to buy a car because at the end of the day, Cars are really expensive. I ha- it's a, you know my money is a scarce resource, and you just can't get me to spend that money based upon you know hitting me with a couple advertisements. So we generally think that that firms have a lot of leeway in trying to persuade people. The courts have though taken the position that there is a certain level of coercion that can be considered not competing on the merits. Um, the courts have not really delved into digital markets with this. Uh, it's, it's normally in sort of product markets like pharmaceuticals and, uh, and where the courts have generally drawn the line at coercion is that at some point consumers don't have an effective choice. Uh, one example was uh, uh, Keurig. I, I guess they redesigned the Keurig machine or a version of it so it wouldn't take K-cups from rival consumers. And they said that effectively shut off consumer choice. You know, it wasn't the design wasn't about improving quality or innovating in a way that made people better. 
In fact, you can even view it as maybe making the product worse off because in the whole goal was to sort of eliminate consumer choice and then increasing monopoly power over those K cups. So there is this idea that, that firms can coerce people. Uh, another example might be, I don't know if the, I don't think they actually used the word coercion, but when the, the famous Microsoft case, when it installed Internet Explorer into um, into the Windows program and didn't allow people to uh, to deinstall it, and they said this sort of innovation wasn't meant to benefit consumers. In fact, it was kind of hurt consumers if they wanted to deinstall it, and the whole goal was to sort of raise switching costs. And so we've kind of played upon those uh, uh, on those presidents to find out, yeah, it seems like the courts do draw a distinction. And at some point when, when rivals are effectively foreclosed or costs are raised so high that consumers are sort of coerced into patronizing the dominant firm's products. So why would persuasion be pro-competitive and coercion be anti-competitive? Uh, yeah, and that's, and that's a really, and that's a really great question. And um, so the whole idea is things can oftentimes are oftentimes considered pro-competitive, like not just simply okay, but actually, you know, uh, sort of like a benefit is when consumers buy more things. Uh, one reason would be is if you think about like economies of scale, like the more companies sell a good, oftentimes they can sell it cheaper. So if you so if a company does a great job in getting people to buy Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola could like become cheaper and more plentiful available. And so sort of consumer benefit actually benefits. Another sort of on the other end, um, merely charging high prices isn't considered anti-competitive. If there's a company um, that excludes, generally there, there's this idea that it, that it needs to exclude competition and then restrict output. And one reason for restricting output is because it's really hard to make your suppliers charge higher prices. The way to do it is more naturally is just to restrict output because that messes with the supply and demand curve. So if restricting output is sort of the anti-competitive effect that leads to the higher prices, on the flip side, increasing output is then viewed generally as pro-competitive, you know, because it makes products cheaper, whereas restricting output makes things more expensive. So if persuasion and advertising, so let's say that there's a product that's really great, you know, um, Let's say like somebody breaks into the smartphone market, they create a, 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 a smartphone that's better than the iPhone, and they have to get people to in it, but, but if they only sell 10 units of it, it's going to be unnecessarily expensive. But if they can engage in a really sophisticated advertising campaign, convince, spread information, which is generally considered vital, if that, in, if that, if that advertising cam campaign spreads information, People love the iPhone. People then buy the iPhone. And they start bringing in buying such high numbers that the that the products drop. Then generally, consumer welfare is improved. I mean, everyone has a better product because of the persuasion. It's cheaper because of the persuasion, and so that's oftentimes why just sort of mere informational advertising can be considered like a pro-competitive conduct when it increases output. Okay, so. Let's talk about monetary damages. Your article focuses primarily on free platforms. Since these websites and apps are free, where is the monetary harm to the consumer? I think, well, I think one of the most interesting, so I, I, I think John Newman was, in, was recently interviewed on, uh, on this podcast, but I, I think him and other people have done some great work. I believe Tim Wu as well. Uh, about how intention is essentially the 
one of the primary commodities of of sort of the digital markets and and your attention is not finite and, and people fight over your attention so view and in these firm and digital firms create value and create data based upon your attention so it, it's it's seems like as maybe money was traditionally and still is you know sort of one of the primary or the, you know the primary currency it's really difficult now to say that attention isn't a currency, you know, that we're that, that we're currently paying for products with. And with that, I mean, especially I can I can definitely attest this the older I get. I mean, I, I definitely see how how like, you know, time is limited and, and sort of, you know, maximizing the efficiency of my day. And, and so things that sort of grab my attention unnecessarily, uh, I, I, I just have to pull away from because I realize how much money by just paying attention to something that I probably shouldn't sort of like, you know, how much sort of like of, of that currency I'm spending. Uh, and so I think that's also one of the the, sort of the primary advents coming out of antitrust law over the past 10 years is sort of focusing on free markets or, you know, the better uh, term that's been, that's now universally used is because free is such a misnomer. I mean, nothing is free. If something's given away, I mean, Facebook can't possibly actually be free if you look at how much revenue is sort of generated um, without users paying a price even beyond what advertisers are paying or especially because of what advertisers are paying and so the term now that's kind of universally used is zero price you know because you are paying a price it's just the dollar currency is zero but you still are paying a a very real you know sort of monetary price okay i have the title of your next article it's going to be the price of paying attention because you kept saying paying, and I was like, oh my gosh, you really are paying attention. I know. <laughs> yeah, um, no, no, I know. And, and I think, uh, I, I think unfortunately uh, for us, but good for good John one. Newman, but I think he's beat us to, uh, I think he's beat us to that punch a couple of times and had some really, it's had some really great scholarship uh, based upon that. Okay. So I have my last question for you. Um, talk to me about how enhancing competition can promote decisional privacy. Sorry, Abby, I feel like I've dominated this conversation. Do you, do you want to say something or do you have a... No, no, I, I would, I would like, how, how about you give your answer and then I'll add to it. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, and, 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 this is, and this is not necessarily, and, I, um, and this is sort of uh, um, where, where I, I think we're, we're really trying to make the argument, and I, and I think this is really where there needs to be empirical research. I mean, we've, we've made our sort of like theoretical uh, assertions that we believe dearly in, but I, I would love to find some sort of way to empirically test this. But sort of a lot of the ideas is when there is one dominant firm in a market, especially in places where, where, where prices are zero, I mean, it, I, to me, it seems like market power is or is easier to maintain because other firms can't come in and undersell you sort of not, you know, through just saying with, 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 with conventional money, but where additional competition I think would help is one is, is to me, one of the biggest parts of best parts of competition is information. When firms compete against each other, uh, they just have to tell you why their competitors products aren't nearly as good, why their products are superior. And when firms aren't competing over prices, they're, they're competing over quality, things like privacy and decisional privacy. And so one thing you might notice is as Facebook is now vigorously competing with Snapchat, they just created a digital wellness program uh, based upon 
like eliminating push notifications, et cetera. And not only have they done so, but they're advertising it. You know, they're trying to get that information in front of consumers who are actually very concerned about this and, and would want this. So we think the first thing is, even if consumers don't actively have this demand right now, and there's a term called the privacy paradox, where it's that consumers claim they care about privacy, but when push comes to shove, very little of what they do suggests that they actually care about privacy. But we think this might... So we think with added competition, one, there's informational value. Two, uh, companies have to distinguish themselves, and so they create new products, different products, uh, you know, in the market. Um, And also, I I think when there is, uh, as information sort of exposes some companies as sort of improperly treating your digital privacy, you know, it gives consumers this ability to punish firms when there is sort of a viable alternative. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I agree with everything Greg said, because, of course, he's my co-author and he's brilliant. Uh, But I would also like to add that we realize that this is not a complete panacea, right? Um, Just by allowing more competition among these dominant platforms will not reduce all of their bad behavior. But we do think with more information, with more competition in being a good steward of people's information and manipulating them less will help improve the situation. So not a, not a full solution, but um, definitely a positive benefit. Well, Greg and Abby, thank you so much for coming and being on the show. I just, I enjoyed the hell out of this paper. I learned a lot. Um, Greg, it was very cool to meet you. Abby, maybe I'll get to meet you someday. (laughs) Um, but again, thank you so much for being on Exit. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting us. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do. Before you plan other trips, see the earth first, inside and out. There is beauty and dark adventure deep within it. See the mole people. You'll be pleasantly shocked. Feel their claws run up and down your spine. You'll dig it the most. They'll dig you too. Even the music of the mole people will get you. 